Welcome everyone. My name is David Hernandez Saka and I'm an assistant professor of disability studies in education at the University of Northern Iowa. And I investigate the role of affect and emotions in teacher learning as it relates to social justice issues. I am here with three of my colleagues from UNI in an interdisciplinary collaboration from the Department of Educational Psychology, Foundations and Leadership Studies. We have Associate Professor Dr. Scott Ellison, whose areas of expertise include social and cultural foundations of education. Dr. Scott E.'s background is in cultural studies and sociology of education. Hey, David, thanks for inviting me. Thank you. No problem. From the Department of Kinesiology, Dr. Scott McNamara is also with us today. Dr. Scott M. teaches physical education and adapted physical education courses. Dr. Scott M. has, ex has experience as both an adapted physical educator and special educator. In addition, Dr. Scott M. has developed the What's New in APE, Adaptive Physical Education podcast, which provides insight into the profession through the interviews, through interviews with panels of APE professionals. Thank you very much for having me. It's always nice to be on a podcast that's not my own. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. I appreciate it. From the Department of Allied Health, Recreation, and Community Services, we also have Joyce Levingston, MA, who is a current EDD candidate here at UNI. Joyce is also our local Black Lives Matter chapter organizer from the city of Waterloo here in Iowa. Joyce is also a community activist and has led many of our local communities BLM marches given the racial reckoning this past summer with George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor's um, senseless murders. Joyce is continuing her work to address systems that need to be exposed and dismantled, such as white and ability supremacy in and outside educational institutions, but also food insecurity for black and brown communities as the founder of Cedar Valley's Little Free Pantries. Hey everyone, thanks for having me today. Uh, thank you uh, for being here, Joyce. I really appreciate it. So welcome everyone. I'm so excited um, for our conversation today. The name of our podcast is Social Justice Education in the Midst of Pandemics and Crises. Within this podcast, we will critically engage in an interdisciplinary dialogue to respond to critical race in education theorist and teacher educator, Dr. Gloria Latson Billings, challenge to educational equity researchers, teacher educators, and all community members on how we would respond and be better given the four crises in education and society 
we are experiencing. One, the COVID-19 crisis, um, the fires that happened last year um, within California, violence against Black Americans, and political divisiveness. Individually and collectively, we personally and professionally provide perspective given our identities and positionalities for our respective fields for future justice praxis. Um, Dr. Scott E. will start us off by asking us our broad focus for our podcast. All right. Well, uh, again, thanks, David, for inviting me to participate. This is this is fun. This is exciting. Um, and just to kick it off, I mean, uh, Gloria Lanson Billings, you know, she's talking about the four pandemics of COVID, systemic racism, uh, environmental and economic crises or pandemics, as she puts them, kind of, you know, conjoining in this in, in this particular moment. So uh, this is something I've been thinking about quite a bit over the past few years and doing some work on. And I guess just to kick it off, I mean, what you know, what is how, how do you guys think about this moment uh, from you know, whether it's Lance and Billings framing or not. And what does it mean to actually do the kind of work that we do in, in this kind of historical moment of kind of crisis, so to speak? I think for myself and um, the, you know, working in the community and doing protests for Black Lives Matter and social justice, and um, it's been very interesting because of the pandemic, because we have had to be out um, in the streets. We've had to gather even when it wasn't safe to gather. And we had to do this to, um, you know, fight for our lives in more ways than one. So it just wasn't police brutality, even though that was a large part of it. But what I saw and what we all saw was a um, uncovering too of the racial injustices within our healthcare system too. And not only our healthcare system, but other parts in our communities, like do people have access to not only healthcare, but food, proper nutrition? Why are certain populations, um, you know, dying at a disproportionate, uh, disproportionate rates? And so um, it was just like a, a onion being peeled back, like, oh, police brutality oh, we're in a pandemic. Oh, you know, black and brown communities are suffering the most. Um, oh, they're dying the most. Um, and, you know, just the revealing of um, all the injustices that were, you know, coming together and then also being out there, um, like I said, gathering and protesting and uh, marching during a pandemic. So knowing that even though you are, um, in that disproportionate group that you still have to be out there to literally fight for your lives because um, if we didn't, then who would? Yeah. And I mean, I like the way, uh, I like the layers of the onion. That's a great way of thinking about it. And I think what I, what I admire about Lance and Billings framing here is that it does expand. I mean, in education, especially we, we, it's a practical field, right? It's a practice-based field. And we often think in really narrow terms about what, you know, how better lesson plans, better curriculum and so forth. So what I admire about this framing is that she is, you know, 
opening it up to all the things that exist outside of schools that are impacting inside of classrooms. Just like, so I, I think that's a great way of putting it, Joyce. And I think that's one, of, I mean, I do have some critiques for Lance and Billings here, but I do admire that. I like that she's expanding the, the conversation outside of schools. So um, recently uh, on my podcast, I had this awesome, great, great guy from the Ohio State University, uh, Dr. Sam Hodge, who's a um, expert or, you know, does a lot of research in, in um, social justice. And we talked actually about the Black Lives uh, Matters um, movement and, and a variety of other things, and including COVID a little bit, too. But um, we talked about how the history and kind of how it, it, it developed. We talked about the civil rights movement in the 60s as well. And we what we kind of discussed, and I think you could even discuss this in those other areas too, is are these moments or movements? So we call it the Black Lives Matters movement, but is it really a moment? Is it 2020, 2021, or is there actual change going to occur? And even, I think again, like, you know, I think with COVID or political divisiveness, like, are these things that are right now or are these things that are going to actually like because they're, you know, is COVID going to create change, systematic change, perhaps um, to make online learning more accessible, um, to make learning environments and social environments more accessible? I don't know. But like, are these are the and, you know, I think that's a little bit of a, of a discussion, too. Is this a moment that we remember? 20 years from now or is it something that actually legislation has changed attitudes are changed and systems are changed and i'm not sure right now um if we can say that that's happening oh i think that's super important because especially if you go back because one of the th i've been doing a lot of historical work and specifically in like the modern conservative movement in the 1960s in response to civil rights and what you see is you know first off let's talk about the long civil rights movement right it's it's much longer than just the 1950s and 60s it's a long historical movement that's uh let's say a, a way to put it it's been become more salient and then kind of there's been a reactionary period and you can see that reactionary period in the 1970s and 80s and 90s to that period of activism in the civil rights movement in the 60s 50s and 60s and that's something that should be a cautionary tale of, of where we're going, right? The, the difference between a movement and a moment. Uh, wow, that I think that's big. I really like that as well, because I think <clears throat> I think how I sort of position myself in a lot of these discussions is as someone who is cautious of binaries, right? Is it a movement or is it a uh, a moment, but it's more complex than that. Um, and I think I'm sort of alluding to my post-structural uh, critique of such discourses here um, that really um, would caution against, like, as if these moments are universal for everyone. And so if we think about um the work of critical race theorists um that also would anchor intersectionality and the qualitatively different ways given some of the um situatedness that joyce talked about how um 
different folks experience this moment um, differently given um, issues of uh, power and structures that afford um, some like myself to, in terms of the COVID-19, to not really change much of my life, right? As a privileged um, university professor, a lot of the technology and the university resources that I would um, have had access to, that didn't really change. So on that, so on one level, so it kind of goes back to what Scott E was saying that is real change going to happen? But I, I think we can't globalize um, given the qualitatively different ways that people are situated um, in their institutions or families and things like that. So one example that I've seen here in Iowa is a new um, divisive concepts bill coming um, that is structuring um, at all state level um, agencies um, that is most likely going to become law um, where pressure to talk about diversity training and issues. So this is an offshoot of um, executive order to curtail um, diversity training um, at the you know national level, but so it this is an excellent example of how um, anti-black and divisive politics is also here and has been here. So I I concur with um, Scott E in terms of the ways that we do need a historical consciousness about that this is not only, you know, in the 1960s, in our um, post-apartheid space that we find ourselves as well, um, after, you know, Jim Crow. But I think one of the things that here within uh, the state of Iowa, as a teacher educator, um, when um, Senate File 478 came out, um, you know, in my work in the special education department, I'm coming to such discussions that help us go beyond the technical dimensions of teaching and learning in order to contextualize and think critically about these um, events or these uh, movements, we can call them, that might constrain um, social justice praxis in um, in the world of of in in the world that we, we live in in terms of Scott E and Scott M um, and also um, Joyce in terms of um, you know um, dismantling white supremacy and ability supremacy when Joyce comes and um, speaks to my class of pre-service teachers for example to really um, account for issues that do not decontextualize um, and only think about the, the technical dimensions of these policies and practices because 
we know that they're part of a species of white supremacy and ability supremacy that constrain um, what's imaginable for um, not only for black indigenous and youth of color, but also for white um, females in relationships with um, their diverse um, groups. So one of the things that you know we did um, a couple of weeks ago within my class is to to really respond to and 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 read the um, the ten different divisive concepts that supposedly can't be or will not be able. We cannot necessarily train teachers. Excuse me, train. Um, um, employees on and some of these are basically misinformation that Iowa is a inherently racist or sexist um, state. I think it, it's just a lot of misinformation, which I think is also undergirding a lot of our current time as it relates to um, these issues of, of social justice. Um, things that inherently are also uh, ideologies or worldviews that perpetuate Eurocentricism, um, that individualism and meritocracy, because an, an individual might be, um, um, you know, in, inherently value hard work, um, then there it's said that that would be a divisive concept to teach or to talk about. Um, thank goodness there is some leadership going on within our university um, that we can, uh, it's not necessarily right now, it, this is fairly new, that it's not about our curriculum or what we teach, it's more in the level of how we employ, how we train employees. But I think this is another offshoot of this um, hegemonic movement as well. Yeah. So I wanted to connect it to, to something recently going on. Sure. But I, I think that's also, I mean, got to remember that power is constructed, right? It's constructed and it's contested. So when you think about the, the law you're referencing about diversity training and, and banning it and so forth, that plays right in with Nixon's and Reagan's Southern strategy, right? It's a means of constructing power through ideological struggle and through the structuring of institutions. So I think that actually plays in. I mean, we, we often, you know, and, and I get your point about um, binaries, right? I totally get it. I, I think of those binaries as being dialectical. How about that? Meaning uh, power is contested, like uh, the activist work that was done over the summer with Black Lives Matter, that's contesting power, but there's always gonna be a reaction to it, right? And the thing that we have to remember is that uh, these reactionary forces, I mean, the, to use the example again of the state law you're referencing, that didn't come from lawmakers here, right? That, that comes from large networks and institutions within the conservative movement that are, that are you know, trying, uh, trying to contest power that way and to construct it. Does that make sense? So I think, I think Scott's uh, uh, you know, reference to the uh, uh, civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and this movement or, 
or period or moment. I think that's really instructive because I think in terms of this larger question of what does all this mean for the work that we do, I think I, I think uh, attending to the, those dynamics of, of power constructed and power contested is super important. And I think the the work that Joyce has been doing is an important part of contesting it, right? But we also need to think broad, more broadly about what does it mean to contest that power? So what does it mean to do ideological struggle in a classroom, for example? Yeah, and just thinking about, um, you know, those terms in in other people's conversations, or is it a moment or a movement? Um, I just think about my grandparents raised me, and I think about people who I worked with and who I currently work with now. Um, so besides Black Lives Matter, we uh, I also work with the NAACP, which has been absolutely long standing in the fight for social justice. Um, it may go a different way than what you know what we do organizing with Black Lives Matter, but it's consistent. And I do know some people who, um, for an example, Vicki Brown in our community, she is in her 70s. And when she speaks at marches and protests, she talks about um, losing one of her best friends. And I believe it was the Birmingham church fire. Um, and also talking about having scars uh, still on her legs from getting hit with the water hose. And when I think about her in her age, and when I think about the way I was raised by my grandparents, and I say that because they raised me in a way to keep me safe. Um, certain things that we weren't allowed to do, other kids could do, or my counterparts could do when I was raised in a predominantly white community. Um, and that was because they knew something that I didn't know. And that is the way the system was built against me. And I am, as a mother who has a daughter who's 18 and is out here testing the world, even the, the way, and I have a black son as well, um, even the way that I raise my children is kind of the exact same way. Um, but I said that just to say uh, it doesn't really matter if it, you know, if it's a moment or a movement, because there are people that don't have the privilege to say, is this a moment or a movement? I've seen since the murder of George Floyd um, uh, going from having 400 allies to four allies. You know, some people pick it up for the moment. But some of us will be in this fight for all of our lives, and we don't have um, the privilege of even hanging it up for one day. And it is tiresome and it is exhausting. Um, and the older I get and am able to reflect, I kind of see like the future ahead of me because of when we organize, we have to lean on, um, right, history. What were people doing before? Um, there's been that term used, are you Malcolm or are you, you know, Martin, which um, 
is not a term that, you know, I would use, but still, um, the, you know, the fight has been, uh, forever and will be forever because of these systems that are in place. And even when Black Lives Matter is not marching, we're still organizing and working, um, hard weekly, rather that is with meetings, um, with the school districts, uh, rather that is uh, going over bills and policies and creating infographics for the community um, to be able to understand what's going on. Rather, it's um, focusing on voting education, right? Rather, it's focusing on all the other facets of um, social justice. Uh, we, we still do that work, which is similar to other groups who are organizing, doing the work, rather it's a longstanding group like NAACP, or you have people who literally have just changed the name, right? We could have changed the name, but for me personally, I felt like if we would have used a different name other than Black Lives Matter, we would have been catering to whiteness. And that's what we um, aren't trying to do. So you have other groups like Social Action um, Inc. or, um, you know, social action activists, or, you know, um, you have these other groups that have just basically changed the name, but they're doing the same thing. And their focus goal is to um, make actual change, which we know takes time. Uh, we know it takes time to educate our communities. We know it takes time to um, change policies. Uh, we know it takes time to, even when like the bill came out, it took us a while to even be able to understand it. If you're not from that background, then it really looks like it's trying to, you know, read the Bible, how out there are by way, by, you know, and so really breaking it down so we can um, share with, you know, our community. And so we can take action by that time. It's already slid across, you know, the wrong desk. So, um, but anyways, I just wanted to make reference that some of, you know, some of us just don't have that choice or that privilege to um, hang it up, or we don't even have the privilege of not knowing all of the harm and all of the bad and just taking a break from that. Yeah. And I think that's important, Joyce, because I think especially in education, we think of social justice as though there's an endpoint, as though there's some, you know, utopic ideal at the end. And it's really not. It, I, I think what you're speaking to is the centrality of struggle, right? That uh, to do the kind of work that you're doing is to push that boulder up the hill with no end in sight, right? You're never going to see the top of the hill. And it passes from generation to generation. And I, I think that kind of perspective needs to be incorporated into education, into the legal justice system. We need to stop thinking about how, and I don't misinterpret this, how to fix things. And by which I mean, with just these little tweaks to the system, we're going to fix everything. Instead of thinking about the centrality of struggle, because every advance is going to be met with a reaction, right? That there's, it's, we need to get beyond that kind of instrumental thinking and really focus on the struggle. This resource was brought to you by the Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center. To find out about other Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center resources, visit our website at www.greatlakesequity.org. To subscribe to our publications, click on the subscribe to our publications link located on the Midwestern Plains Equity Assistance Center website. 
The Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center, a project of the Great Lakes Equity Center, is funded by the United States Department of Education to provide technical assistance, resources, and professional learning opportunities related to equity, civil rights, and systemic school reform throughout our 13-state region. The contents of this presentation were developed under a grant from the U.S. Department of Education. However, these contents do not necessarily represent the policy of the U.S. Department of Education, and you should not assume endorsement by the federal government. This product and its contents are provided to educators, local and state education agencies, and or non-commercial entities for educational training purposes only. No part of this recording may be reproduced or utilized in any form or in any means, electronic or mechanical, including recording or by an, any information storage and retrieval system without permission in writing from the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center. Finally, the Midwest and Plains Equity Assistance Center would like to thank the Indiana University School of Education Indianapolis at IEPY, as well as Executive Director Dr. Kathleen Kintorius, Director of Operations Dr. Sina Skelton, and Associate Director Dr. Tiffany Kaiser for their leadership and guidance in the development of all tools and resources to support the region.